morning. And it's almost Christmas. We're going to do one more message in our Matthew series in the next week. Christmas Day, we are going to be looking specially at Christmas. But our message is actually a good tie-in, or our text is actually a pretty good tie-in this week with the Advent theme of love. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Matthew 5, we're just finishing up chapter 5 here today. We didn't get as far as we wanted two weeks ago, so we're going to pick it up at verse 33 and go through to the end of the chapter. So turn to Matthew 5, and once you've got it, then I'll ask you to stand as we read God's Word. And these are the infallible, inerrant, and perfect words of God. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you can be seated. I trust that God would bless the reading of his word. The story is told of a, <clears throat> a man who was having <clears throat> excuse me, some marriage trouble and he went to go see his pastor. And his pastor reminded him that the Bible teaches us to love your wife. And he was really struggling and things weren't going so good at home. And he said, well, you know what? It honestly, we're so distant right now. It doesn't even feel like we're married. And the pastor said, okay, well, you're still living in the same house, right? Yeah, yeah, we're still living in the same house. Well, then the Bible says to love your neighbor. And he said, well, yeah, but you know, it's, it's really tough. We're, you know, we hardly talk. We don't, we just pass each other by in the house. And, and frankly, she's really getting on my nerves. And so the pastor says, well, the Bible says, love your enemy, right? And so this was how he solved this issue. Uh, and uh, that story came to mind because last time, two weeks ago when I preached, there was a very natural connection between divorce and oaths in this text, uh, but we didn't get that far. And so uh, I was looking for a way to tie it in, and I think we still can, to get from that to loving our enemies. But we're going to cover a little uh, more material this week because we did less last time. So on oath speaking, verse 33 through 37 said again that you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay, and so this is a natural tie, and Christ has just taught about divorce um, and the, the implications from that. So it's a natural thing to get to oath-keeping, because after all, uh, what is marriage other than a covenant or an oath? So he's not just jumping around with a grab bag of random topics, uh, but he's making specific applications as he preaches on the meaning of God's law. So he makes specific application to anger, lust, divorce, and now oaths, and he's going to extend that to loving our neighbor and what justice looks like. So really what he's doing, he's not just giving a grab bag of random miscellaneous teachings for us to kind of put up on our fridge to remember to be good through the week. What he's doing is an in-depth teaching of the meaning of the law. He's expositing Moses. Jesus is a preacher of the Old Testament. So he's preaching Moses. He's showing that the root of the matter was the foundation of the law that God gave to Moses. And so many of these things are in fact tied to the Ten Commandments, as we can obviously see. Murder, adultery, and now bearing false witness. So Jesus starts by the simple truth that we ought not to bear false witness. We ought not to lie. Well, that's simple enough. We have that wisdom scattered uh, throughout Scripture. He's repeating the wisdom that we find in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 5, where it says that it is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Breaking our word is a big deal, and Scripture warns us about it. But if we think about keeping oaths or not, not using oaths, um, because this is a fairly, I would like to think, fairly biblically literate crowd, you're already running through a couple problems in your head about making oaths. Because, probably, you're remembering Jesus' trial in Matthew 26, 63, where Jesus is more than happy to speak while he's under oath. Or you might think of Paul, the apostle, when he's writing Romans 1, he invokes an oath with God as his witness. Or you can think of how God himself confirms an oath. If you read Hebrews 6 or Acts 2. Um, or uh, another one that comes to mind now is in Genesis 17 where God makes his oath with Abraham. Um, I had the privilege of marrying Keith and Kara May and that was the text at their wedding. Was God walking between the pieces of a carcass? I don't know if I've been to a wedding since or before that. <laughs> that had God walking through the pieces of animals at a wedding. But God makes an oath. And we even see in the law of Moses, Numbers 5, 19 and 21 and 32 and 3, that some places in the Old Testament law uh, prescribe oaths under certain circumstances. And you're maybe thinking, well, am I in sin? I clearly remember making vows when we got married. I made an oath when we got married. Was that wrong? So taking the whole of Scripture, this seems less like a categorical forbidding of oaths or covenants under all circumstances, and more like an opportunity to consider how our words need to always be honest and truthful, regardless of the circumstances. And so part of the custom that Jesus was bumping up against here with the Pharisees is that people would make oaths on a scale of how serious they were. Uh, and that's why he talks about some of the things that they were swearing by. Sometimes they'd swear by heaven. Sometimes they'd swear by earth. Sometimes they'd swear by the city of Jerusalem. And sometimes they would swear on their own head. And the problem with legalism and gnat straining is that it's very often a way to look for a loophole or for a way out. And if it's in your heart to be dishonest, 
then of course a graded system of oaths would make perfect sense, wouldn't it? If I, if I make a lesser oath, it still sounds serious, so I'm giving the impression that I'm serious, but really in my heart I've committed to not keeping my word, and because I swore by something less serious, I have a loophole, I have a way out. And we still do this uh, nap straining in our own time. Who remembers on the playground uh, saying, um, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye? Remember that? You know how kids make an oath? I probably made that one. But if your friends weren't taking you seriously, you could escalate your oath. And you could go all the way to swearing on your mother's grave. Right? Very serious oath. There's a couple problems with that. One, why not just let your yes be a yes? Secondly, to make an, an oath on your mother's grave, how much sense does that make? If your mother's in the grave, she can't hold you accountable anymore. Okay? Part of the seriousness is that when we're speaking, when we're making commitments, it's God who is our witness. It's not your mother's grave who has authority and accountability over you. It's the God of heaven and earth. So these trite little oaths and promises that we make show very often how vain and how empty our words are. Ultimately, it is God who hears all our words. He hears all the commitments we make to one another. And so all our pledges, oaths, commitments, and promises ultimately have God as their witness. And so our word, therefore, should mean what we say at all times. Because in one sense, we are always speaking before the face of God. We are always invoking God as our witness, whether we say it or not. So we need to speak the truth even in the absence of an oath. And sometimes we do have customs uh, where we make public pronouncements of things, public witnesses, a ceremony, uh, and sometimes there's clear threats if we break them. But when we go through these ceremonies, when we go through these things, it should serve as a reminder of the weight that the things that we do, like getting married in front of witnesses or keeping our word to a customer or to a business partner. And so there is a, a place for ceremony to be attached to our word, provided that we always mean our word, right? A, a boy can make any kind of promise to a girl in the heat of the moment, but when he's clearly standing in front of God and witnesses, promising in front of all these people, yes, I will not break my word, there's a weight or a gravity that comes with it. Or if some young guy starts an upstart business, he can make all kinds of promises to his customers just to get his first sale or his first deal. But once there's a contract or some kind of a formal business arrangement made, he's forced to think about his words. So even when we formalize these things, it shouldn't be taken as, well, if, we, if it's a formal procedure, then I really mean it. Otherwise, I can just kind of say what I want and it's loosey-goosey. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching against. One farm board I served on, we had a, a, a really good sales guy on the team. Uh, but the sales guy, he wanted to farm. And... He was working out of BC and there was an older couple with a farm in Ontario that was retiring and they had offered a herdsman position on their dairy farm with the understanding that because none of their kids wanted to farm uh, that this guy would have an ownership stake in their dairy farm as time went on. And he moved his family, he went from BC to Ontario, he went there, he started working on this farm and it became very clear that there was absolutely no intention whatsoever to give him an ownership stake. They just wanted to keep farming for another five years. So they promised one thing and delivered another. And the problem was, because there was no contract, there was no written agreement, they didn't do anything illegal. But they did something deeply immoral. They did something deceptive. It was wrong even when there's not paperwork, even when there's not a legal oath or a vow that's being made. And so we are instructed here to be people of the truth at all times. 
And this means keeping our word even when we are not under oath. And lest we think this is just the kind of stuff if we get called to jury duty or we get called to a witness or it happens one time when we get married, not at all. There's always practical implications for keeping our word. If we tell our children we're going to do something, we need to mean it. And it's easy when your kids are pestering you, uh, you know, for something and finally you just say, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. If you say that, you have to do it. Uh, and so I became very good when our kids were small at saying, we'll see. <laughs> it kind of lowers the temperature for a little bit, but I didn't make a promise of something that I have no intention to follow through. But we need to let our yes be a yes and your no be a no. If you don't intend to do it, don't tell your kids, yeah, we'll do it later. Say no or we can discuss it. On the negative side, you also see it too uh, when, as parents, we threaten discipline of our little children. Kids are pretty fast learners. They're pretty sharp. And they learn authority and how it erodes very soon. And they'll adjust their behavior accordingly. I remember one time, I wasn't even married yet, me and some friends of ours, we were camping at Lake of the Woods and we drove to Warroad for ice cream one evening and this mom comes in with her kid and this kid's being a brat and whining and and mom says, no, well, you're not getting any ice cream after supper. Forcing the kid to whine further. And one of my friends says, well, you know, that's a family where the word means nothing at home. And sure enough, that kid walked out with a big thing of ice cream. (laughs) Okay, He escalated the whining because he knows mom isn't to be taken seriously. Mom's word doesn't mean anything. If I whine harder, I'll get what I want in the end. I sometimes see it when I, when I hear parents counting to three for their disobedient child. First of all, why are kids allowed three seconds of disobedience? Fair question. Also, if you ever watch that countdown happen, here's how it goes. One, two, two and a third, two and three-eighths, right? Why? Well, because the kid has adjusted his behavior because he knows mom isn't serious. Okay? He knows mom's not serious. So the countdown slows down, so mom has the appearance of not losing, uh, but the kid knows better. Our word needs to mean what it says. If we say something, we must follow through. So we can see what Jesus, well, we can see the connection between what Jesus has just taught on divorce and oaths in this way. If we make a commitment, it is to mean something. And so in all our actions, We are reflecting the image of God, and God is a covenant-keeping God. We image Him well when we keep our word, and we are lying about Him when we do not keep our word. Moving on in verse 38 through 42, it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so Jesus is commenting here on this principle of the eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth. In Latin, this legal principle is called lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. How a penalty needs to match a crime. And this is a, something that really sets the people of God apart from many pagan cultures, is that we don't escalate violence. And this tradition found its way into other cultures, but it finds its root in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's outlined in Deuteronomy 19.20-21, 20 we read that this morning. And so while 
many people falsely assume that the Old Testament was the old, harsh Word of God and the New Testament is the happy, clappy Word of God, let's not be so fast. There is grace all the way through the Old Testament. And if you wanted to develop a clear doctrine of hell, where do you find it? Almost entirely from the mouth of Jesus. Okay? So let's not do this game. The Old Testament is wrath and justice, and the New Testament is grace and the lowering of the standard. Not at all. There is grace in the Old Testament, and there is plenty of threatening in the New Testament. The lex talionis, or the eye for the eye, tooth for the tooth principle, did not establish heavy-handed law, not by any stretch. Rather, what it did is it kept things from escalating, and I think we can see this all in our own hearts. Left to ourselves, we enjoy revenge. We enjoy exacting interest when we clean up a late bill, right? If if I'm going to avenge my family for something, I don't want to just take back what was taken from me. I'm going to charge 10% interest on it. And if I'm really angry, maybe 300% interest on it. That's what we tend to do as sinful people. We feel personally insulted, therefore I have to get the better of the other guy. And so things very quickly escalate. Things very quickly become an entire jaw for a tooth. Right? Or two eyes for an eye. That's our sinful nature. That's revenge. That's vengeance. And so the eye for the eye, tooth for the tooth principle, uh, is what establishes just weights and measures. It's part of a biblical view of how justice operates. So God is limiting what we can take in response to an injustice. And where other societies had a designated avenger in the family or in the clan, so let's say somebody murders someone in your family, your family, your clan, sends a designated avenger out to go kill them. Okay? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But that escalates because you kill the guy's cousin on the way because you're angry. This is how Hatfield and McCoy stuff tends to escalate. This is how empires come unraveled because of this. And so a system of just weights and measures is unique to the biblical conception of justice. And you notice, too, this isn't personal vengeance. Ray read it this morning. Uh, Part of this moving from escalating to a system of measured justice is that you don't do it. There's authorities in place. There's judges and priests to administer this so it doesn't become revenge. And it's on them to give a fair punishment. Christ goes on to further explain that so far from escalating repayment, Christians are often called to turn the other cheek. And we are probably so familiar with this passage that we may lose sight of it. But think, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, R.C. Sproul has a great story about demonstrating this when he was a pastor and seminary instructor in Pittsburgh. He was also the team chaplain for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Actually, while Terry Bradshaw was there. Uh, And he said he wanted to demonstrate this in the locker room one time, and there was a defensive end that he had volunteered to do the striking on the right cheek thing with. And he said he had to stand on a chair to reach this guy's face. But think of this. If you are right-handed, how do you strike someone on the right cheek? If I do this, it's the left cheek. If I do this, it's extra insulting to strike someone on the right cheek. It's the back of your hand. It's an insult not just a hit. It's a form of disrespect. And so let's not lose the fact that this isn't just physical violence. This is blatant disrespect that Jesus is talking about. And it's in this context that we're to turn the other cheek. 
rather than upping the ante and striking our opponent back twice as badly as he struck us. We also know Roman law allowed the authorities to demand that someone carry a load for them for up to one mile. So if you're a Roman soldier and you're getting tired of carrying your stuff, you could go up to any citizen and make them carry it for one mile for you. And Jesus says, if you're, if you're in that situation, show them good faith by going two miles. Okay? And this is actually what happened when Simon Cyrene was carrying Christ's cross. This was a, a custom that would have been done to make someone carry a load uh, at the command of the military for up to one mile. And now again, because there's often the guardrail on both sides of the road, there's a ditch on both sides of the road, some have used passages like this to advance a kind of state pacifism or a view which has the state moving from uh, penal justice to restorative justice. So in other words, instead of punishing criminals, we try to fix them. We try to rehabilitate them. And that is the common view uh, in our own time. Everything is about fixing a criminal, but restoring them, rehabilitating them instead of punishing them for what they've done. And I don't think that's taught here. There are inst- these are instructions for our personal conduct, and these are not detailed instructions on how the civil government is to operate. And we all know of certain Bible texts that get abused beyond belief. Uh, Jeremiah 11:29 might be the most abused passage in Scripture, right next to Matthew 7, verse 1, don't judge. Right? Some texts just get taken out of context and treated very badly. Unfortunately, we are living right now in a period of time where few passages have been abused more badly than Romans 13 and the place of the state. So try to get that abuse of Romans 13 out of your mind and think of what's actually intended there. It's not saying that you obey Caesar at any cost. It's saying that Caesar is God's deacon. The word there is diakonos. Caesar is God's deacon to do good in society. And what does God give him? The sword. God gives the civil government the sword. Okay? Swords don't write out speeding tickets. Swords don't fix criminals. Swords deliver justice for a crime. And it, in that role, when the state is administering proper justice, when it's governing according to God's law, uh, the state has the power of the sword. Okay? So the sword isn't a picture of re-education or doing X amount of hours of community service, but of a just penalty. And moving to restorative, rehabilitative justice, as we have done, has not had good consequences. Uh, and I think it's out of line with what the Bible teaches. So then we're faced with this dilemma. Is it hypocritical for a Christian to be involved and to want civil justice when we're commanded to turn the other cheek in our personal affairs? And I would suggest to you, no, it is not hypocritical. The state is God's agent to administer justice, and the church is God's agent to administer grace. And so we operate according to the instructions that God has given in each part of our life. How, did, how might this work? Uh, here's an example I thought of, and because Ty is my cousin, I'm going to pick on Ty. I think we would all agree that it would be inappropriate for me to go into Ty and Jenny's house and to be the one to deliver spankings to their children, right? It's not my place. It's not my place. It's not my house. It's not my kids. Uh, It's not my job to give spankings there. So, does that mean now and across the board, well, spankings are never permitted? Is it hypocritical if I spank my kids? Not at all. Not at all. Same person, different setting. One thing may be appropriate here and another there. So I don't think this is saying the state needs to act according 
to pacifist principles, but that as Christians, our job in our personal conduct is to de-escalate conflict rather than escalating it. And it's not hypocritical uh, to still see that there is a place for God to use the sword via the government. I don't think there's an ultimate conflict here. I don't think uh, the Bible's contradicting itself. So there's no ultimate conflict here with God demanding that a man act according to justice in one sphere while demanding that he act according to grace in another sphere. And so if someone commits a crime against you, there's no ultimate conflict in letting the authorities do their job and being able to forgive that person on a personal level and to be reconciled to them. I think one extreme example of how I saw this came out when I was in uh, school, who remembers Ted Bundy? going to death row, okay? Ted Bundy did commit some grievous, horrific crimes uh, and affected many families with his crime and left many empty spots at the table because of his crimes. And right before his death sentence, he was interviewed by Dr. James Dobson, and I don't know, of course, the state of Ted Bundy's heart, but he made what James Dobson said was a a credible profession of faith at the end of his life, okay? Is there a conflict between carrying on the sentence that the state had said, you need to die for what you've done, and the fact that God has forgiven Ted Bundy for all those things? I don't think that's an ultimate conflict. It might seem weird to us. Uh, And Ted Bundy, in that interview himself, said, I have committed crimes against these families that I can't restore. I can't put these people back at the table. I deserve the penalty that's coming to me. It's a just penalty, and God has forgiven me. So I have no fear what's on the other side of my very just death penalty. I think that's how we uh, are able to see this. Just weights and measures aren't abandoned because we personally choose to de-escalate conflict. And the instructions that we're given for our own lives are clear here. Christians need to be those who de-escalate conflict and to become peacemakers instead of escalating conflict. And the cycle of revenge and never-ending conflict has to come to an end eventually. And we are instructed to be the ones, as Christ's ambassadors, to bring it to an end by absorbing the cost on ourselves. That's what Jesus did. He, he took the penalty for sin that he did not perform. And essentially, when we forgive someone, that's what we are doing, is we are accepting the cost of their sin upon ourselves. We are mimicking Christ as we forgive others, as we de-escalate conflict. And this can be very difficult, because it frequently appears that those of us who are living godly and orderly lives end up being the ones who pay the price for other people's undisciplined living. I have felt that frustration in my own life. You know, me and Tanya are minding our own business, we're doing our own thing, and why is it that we end up paying the cost for someone else's discipline? It, it almost feels like it's a tax on being disciplined and a subsidy on being undisciplined, and yet here I am reminded of the cross of Christ. He suffered my sins for which he took responsibility even though he was not guilty of them. We need to remember that as Christians, we discussed this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, we should never want what's fair. Fair is bad news. Fair is instant death. Fair is hell for eternity. We don't want fair, we want mercy. And so in moments like these, when it's, it's important to remember that God will settle every score perfectly. And that also should help to take away the edge from our desire to see uh, vengeance or to see revenge exacted. Because we know we serve a God who will settle every score perfectly at the end. That's why, uh, and we've discussed this at Men's Night sometimes, societies that have been built on Christian principles presume innocence. 
because we presume, we know it would be better to let a guilty man go free than to punish unjustly a guilty man. Why? Well, because if we get it wrong, God will get it right. No one will escape God's justice. And so it's natural that as we move away from biblical standards of justice, we see these revolutionary mobs, right? You see it in the 60s, you see it in the 70s, you see it today. These, these mobs that are demanding social justice, right? And when do we want it? Now! Right? Why? Because there's no patience, there's no God in the revolutionary mindset. Things, statues have to get torn down today. People have to get cancelled right now. Pastors need to shut their mouths yesterday because we need justice now. And so for those who want mob justice now, or for those who want to push the concept of turning the other cheek all the way into absolute pacifism, it's important for us to remember that God doesn't say vengeance is bad. He says vengeance is mine. God will repay. No one is going to escape ultimate justice in the end. Verse 33, 43 through 48 it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain to the just and the unjust. For if, those, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so this command to love your neighbor, again, is not new with Jesus. It's found in Leviticus 19.18. So it's not a new teaching that Jesus has established. It's an old one that he is explaining from the law of Moses. What the people misunderstood, though, was that there was actually no command to hate your enemy. This was a false conclusion that they drew from the fact that we are to love our neighbors. They assumed the opposite of that was we are free to hate our enemies. But Jesus teaches us elsewhere in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he teaches us who our neighbor is. And who is that? Anyone who God puts in your path is your neighbor. Those are the people, if, do they have a name? Yes, well, then we are to love them. That's what loving our neighbor is. And loving your enemies isn't necessarily just an emotional reaction that might be filled with warm, fuzzy feelings. We don't always do it out of the overflow of our heart. Because sometimes there's a tangled mess of a background to the situation. And it's hard to feel feelings of love towards our enemy. But there must be a commitment to treat them according to love. And so again, the correct course of action for those of us who are image bearers of God, which is all of us, is to remember that God is patient with the ungodly all day long, even though it is not deserved. And in the Beatitudes, we're told that the peacemakers were blessed because they would be called sons of God. So peacemaking is a sign of sonship. And here we're given instructions on how to be peacemakers, to love our enemies and to pray for our persecutors. Then in verse 45, he says, For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And the statement shows that God's love and goodwill exists even towards unbelievers. And so here again, we need to be careful to think through and make careful distinctions so we don't end up in a ditch or with a simplistic or a lopsided view. It's clear that even unbelievers receive many gifts from God, and this is true because there is a very real sense in which God loves all men. But sometimes we hear precise or careless talk in this area, which doesn't help us think very clearly. We've probably all heard the expression, God loves every, or God forgives everyone unconditionally, right? Is that true? 
Does God forgive unconditionally? Absolutely not. God does not forgive unconditionally. If he did, everyone's sins are forgiven. Okay? There is no hell in that case. God's forgiveness is conditional. What's it conditioned on? Your repentance and your faith. That is the condition of God's forgiveness. Okay? So when we just take one truth and run all the way with it, we often end up thinking in imprecise and inaccurate ways. God does not forgive unconditionally. It's clear that there is a way in which God does love the unrepentant, but that doesn't mean that unrepentant people are loved in the exact same way that God accepts his children. Because the other guardrail, and we saw some of this when we were going through the Psalms this summer, in Psalm 5.5 it says that God hates all evildoers. It doesn't say he hates their evil. He hates them. He hates evildoers. God hates evildoers. In Psalm 11.5 it says that his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Are you a violent man? God hates you. God hates you if you're a violent man, according to Psalm 11.5. And in Psalm 7.11, we read that God is angry with the wicked all day long. God lives in perpetual anger at those who do not bend the knee to him. So how do we put that together that God loves all people? And you'll probably remember this from summer, but I'll go over it again. Uh, And that we can make distinctions. We can think carefully about God's love and put this together in a way that we don't end up with contradictions. We have uh, what Scripture, this is our words to describe what Scripture is teaching, is God's love of benevolence. And this is God's general goodwill towards his creation generally. Even after the fall, God has a general uh, disposition that is loving and gracious towards his creation. And there's God's love of beneficence. And this is God gives gifts to people regardless of whether they are believers or not. Many people enjoy many good gifts from God. Okay? An unbeliever can enjoy a great steak. Okay? An unbeliever knows the joy of bringing a little baby home. Okay? God, these are gifts from God. Unbelievers can enjoy a happy marriage. Unbelievers can enjoy a sunny day. Unbelievers can enjoy a round of golf. There's many gifts that God gives even to unbelievers. And this is often talked about uh, as common grace. God's grace is common to all things, uh, to all creation. And so even unbelieving people not because of their ability, but because of God's kindness, have genuinely true insights into things or can enjoy things generally. So this is what is meant when we talk about God's love for creation for all men. But we shouldn't take that to mean that there's absolutely no difference in the way God views Pharaoh or in the way God views Moses. Or that God sees uh, Judas in the exact same light as he sees Peter. Not at all. That wouldn't make any sense. And then we talk about God's love of complacency. And this is his special love that is unique to those who are in his family. This is a discriminating love. A love which is fully satisfied in his son. So first of all, this love lands on Jesus. But then it lands to all those who are in Christ. If you are united to Christ, then this special discriminating love applies to you as much as it applies to his son, Jesus Christ, because you are in Christ. He loves you as much as he loves his own son. So we can and should affirm common grace or a kind of God's love that applies across the board, but we should do so in a way that doesn't blur the distinction between believer and unbeliever, between those who are in Christ and those who are not. The logic of verse 46 and 47 is plain. If a holy God is able to lovingly give gifts of grace even to those who are at war against him, we should also be able to show grace and patience and love to those who make our lives more difficult than we think they should be. 
And again, think of it in terms of significance or think in terms of scale. God's holy character. God who created man out of dust is living with insult all day long. An affront and a war against his righteousness. And he is patient. And my day gets derailed, so I have to take three extra steps. And I'm angry and frustrated. Does that make any sense at all? I have no holiness in me to be offended or to be insulted. God puts up with this all day long. And that's one of these how much more arguments for ourselves when people make our lives difficult. And so the instruction to model in our own lives uh, is to follow after the image of God. We need to model our own lives after God, as is evident at the end of uh, the chapter in verse 48, right to the point of perfection. God is perfect. Our purpose for existing is to be image bearers of God, to reflect His glory. And so therefore, we must also be perfect. But how can this be? How can we be perfect? After all, isn't it true that to err is human? Here's the thing. We were designed to be perfect. We were created in a sinless state and we fell. And now everyone who is a son of Adam and Eve or a daughter of Adam and Eve is fallen. We do err. We do sin. We do rebel against God. So how can we be perfect? How can we stand in front of God? And we know that if God grades us on a curve because he understands that we're all imperfect, he would have negotiated his holiness, right? So think if you're, you know, teacher's grading a class too hard and everyone fails the test, even the really sharp kid, often what the teacher will do is say, okay, well, I made that test too hard, uh, so I'm just going to give a passing grade to the top 30%. It's called grading on a curve. God does not grade on a curve. How many people have heard say, yeah, I know I probably drink a bit too much, but my friend drinks way more than me, right? Yeah, you know what, I lose my temper sometimes, but I've got six friends, frankly, whose temper is worse than mine. Does God care? Not at all, because the standard isn't what your friends are doing. The standard is God. Are you perfect? And there are some things that God can not do. And one of those things is to lower his standards. God cannot negotiate his holiness. He will not negotiate his holiness. It would be a violation of himself. This is something God absolutely cannot and will not do, is great on a curve, take the top 30% or negotiate his holiness. To get into heaven... To be in God's presence, you need to be perfect. And when we've listened to Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, we are listening to the law of God. And if we're honest, we're all starting to see how short we have fallen. Trying harder may result in short-term improvements, but it will never make us perfect. And even if we theoretically could, what do we do with all the sin in the past that mars that perfection? The perfection that comes to us is the perfection of Christ. Jesus fulfills the law perfectly and then adopts us into his family and we become united to him. This is what it means to be in Christ. We are covered by Christ. God accepts us because we are perfect. We have the perfection of Christ covering us as a cloak. And so look at the very real and tangible ways, even just in this text, where Christ quite literally does these things for us before he commands them from us. One, he keeps his covenant. Before Jesus came to earth, he was there in the Trinity. There was three persons of the Trinity before Jesus took on a human form. They had a covenant between the three of them to redeem this creation, and Christ kept his peace. He kept his covenant. He kept the lex talionis, the just punishment for sin. He did, quite literally, turn the other cheek when he was being beaten 
and insulted. He offers the cloak of his righteousness to us as his clothes are being torn from his own body. He carries a literal cross at the command of the military for us. And he gives gifts of grace to friend and to enemy alike, and he keeps God's law perfectly. And so this is the perfection that stands up in the court of God's law in a legal sense. But then it also starts to work itself out, however slowly, it must work itself out in our own experience. We're provided with a new nature at our rebirth. And Ray read about that this morning. And this new nature slowly but surely gets us to obey in our subjective experience. So legally, we are made perfect at the moment of conversion. You are perfect. God has declared you perfect, righteous, holy. And then out of that, experientially, over time, our conduct moves from that of the old reality to that of the new reality. And it's finally made perfect on the day of our death when we graduate to glory. So, in the area of keeping oaths, of de-escalating retaliation, of establishing justice, or of loving our enemies, Christ has laid out a clear standard for our actions. We are to model God. And we can't even get started down this path if we are not right with God. An unbeliever has no hope if they're going to pursue the path of self-righteousness. But for those of us who have been born again and who have received the gospel, who have been declared by God because we are covered in Christ to be perfectly righteous, we actually are able to start down this road as we rehearse for glory. And God's Spirit is with us to ensure that we do move this path, even amidst setback and struggle. And so let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the perfect harmony between Old and New Testament, between what you saw in, or what you gave us to see in promises and in shadows and the way that that is so perfectly uh, made clear by the light of Christ's coming. Lord, and even as we prepare uh, to celebrate, to mark time uh, by the marker of your coming to earth in human form, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of how you have done this for us perfectly, even to the point of taking on real human flesh to represent us perfectly. Lord, thank you for the way that you have loved your creation, enough to send the Son, enough to show us the way, enough to explain the law of Moses so that we are no longer blind and deaf, but that we may see. Lord, I pray for each one here. I pray for those who do not know you in a saving way. Lord, I pray that they would turn and see their need for you, that there would be rebirth, that there would be repentance in receiving your promises by faith. Lord, and for those of us who do know you in a saving way, I pray that you would send a double dose of your spirit this week in this season as we commemorate, as we mark time by your coming, as we think of what it means that you so loved the world, uh, that you sent your son for us. Lord, help us to prepare. Help us to celebrate well. Help us to be filled with joy and love and gift-giving and laughter and feasting, all out of an acknowledgement of what you have given us by sheer grace. Pray that you'd be with us as we uh, sing. Now, one last time, as we go out uh, into the world, strengthen us, and I pray that we would be ambassadors that reflect your glory well. pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So receive the charge. In his conduct and in his preaching, Christ has shown us perfectly what a life of glorifying the Father looks like. Christ always keeps his word. Christ never judges more harshly than the situation calls for. Christ happily went the extra mile for us. 
He demonstrates what we ought to do when someone asks for our tunic. For when we demanded signs and wonders and gifts from him, he went to the additional step of covering us with the cloak of his righteousness, giving us more than we knew we even needed. He's patiently returning good for evil, blessing his whole creation with common grace gifts for all to enjoy, but also praying and interceding specially for his brothers and sisters. So in the week ahead, let's recall the character of God despite our sin and rebellion and commit to treating others in the same way he has treated us. And I'll leave you with a benediction from Numbers 6. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace and go in peace.